0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Welcome all. Thank you very much for being here. So I'm just going to hand over to Will. He's going to read from The Absent Therapist, of which, as you know, Nick Lezard had said, the whole book is like someone deeply charismatic and charming, daring you not to find them insane. Thank you very much, Charles, and thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, this is a book of voices, um, an echo chamber, if you will, Uh, some of the voices are internal monologues, some of them are responses to persons unspecified, and some of them are merely anecdotal or contemplative in some way, or rude, Uh, and all are quite short, so I'm just going to read a few. I went to the spanking club once. It was mostly older men in glasses and short-sleeved shirts. A few were wandering around in school uniform in shorts. The whole place smelt of bleach. On the bar, the organisers, someone, had laid out the implements. Gloves, spatulas, ping-pong bats, flails, knobbly dildos, a few bits and pieces I didn't recognise. People seemed to be enjoying themselves, yes, in a serious-minded sort of way. It was eccentric, I'd say, more than erotic or perverse, certainly not obscene. After about an hour of leisurely smacking, a skinny little man came in and rang a bell, and they served a buffet. (laughs) The codgers pulled up their trousers, wiped their glasses, and queued for sausages and potato salad. And then disappeared into dark corners with plastic forks and paper plates. No one, not one, washed their hands first. It was revolting. They were a bunch of professionals, of teachers. There was a geography teacher, a history teacher, and an English teacher. They were hustlers. That's the point. They'd organised themselves into a group and they went from pub to pub, wiping out, cleaning up, sorry. They knew they were going to win. They'd organised, developed a strategy so that no one else would have a chance. And they were so smug. That's what got me. You have to understand, it was a calculated play. Nothing innocent about it. It wasn't that they were competitive or that they wanted to win. That wouldn't have worried me. It was the fact they were hustlers. And the point about hustlers, the point about hustlers, is that they always win. It's not fair. The locals didn't stand a chance. Those fucking teachers... I could have strangled a lot of them. Don't go thinking there was anything innocent about their plan. A hustler is not what he pretends to be. He starts out being one of you, and then little by little he plays his cards, and before you know it, you're fucked. They've got dark designs. When I was nine, I took a swig from the brandy bottle in the cupboard, and as I was trying to wiggle the cork back in, it broke. My parents were fairly strict, but more than that, they were unpredictable. I had the feeling they would deal with me pretty harshly for a petty offence like this. How would they know about it? I didn't stop to think. I was truly terrified, and only knew I had to replace the cork, which was special with a little flat hat on it. I knew there was a home brew shop in town, and with the clarity of panicky youth, I knew they might be able to help me. I had enough pocket money. I went to get my pocket money from my room, which I shared with my brother, and he was in there wanking with another boy. (laughs) I got the cork, and I was so, so relieved when I'd replaced it that I felt I had to cap it all by telling Dad about the funny thing I'd seen Gus doing that afternoon. End with a slightly longer one. The lads are wearing suits which draw attention to the spots around their lips. And the girls are still experimenting with makeup, putting it on too thick. And there are some trim mums and one thin, very inebriated grandmother dressed too youthfully, sweeping and swaying to doctor pressure. White ties with big knots go with black shirts, the lads have decided and some tentative carpet boogie is the necessary preliminary to joining the two or three brave girls already on the postage stamp-sized dance floor, from which the defiant grandmother has just retired in a fit of weeping expectoration. One bloke fancies himself as a dancer, but at this stage in the evening restricts himself to a few pelvic rotations while talking at the bar to a girl in a tight crushed blue bodice perched awkwardly on a stool. She is telling him about a dream involving a vampire, a woman with an eating disorder who looks like Linda, she points at the weeping granny, and an angry face at the window. She thinks it's about balance, and just as she says the word balance, the bloke listening to her does a little spin and has to reach out for the bar when he comes back round and covers embarrassment by saying, go on, I'm listening, vampires. To which the girl responds by taking a sip of her wine and looking down at her shoes. I don't know anyone. I'm in Wotton, staying with a friend who's a medical courier and a part-time DJ. He knows the DJ at this party, which is why we're here. Lads start to dance towards the end of a song, I've noticed, rather than near the beginning. This way, they don't have to dance for long, and can duck out quickly if they haven't made, or feel they're unlikely to make, the right impression. Certain songs and singers get blokes going, Justin Timberlake for instance, because he's bringing sexy back, but not to Norfolk, so no competition. For similar reasons, a good gay dancer is an excellent investment. He can be guaranteed to get people to focus their attention on the dance floor. No one wants to be like him. He's too good, too gay. But while he holds everyone's attention, the more self-conscious majority of the blokes can join him and the girls in the safe knowledge that their own moves will be less obvious, less open to scrutiny, and therefore more alluring. The semi-professional gay dance teacher is an encouraging distraction, in other words. And when he's done his 40 minutes, he can fuck off, can't he? and hang around the sports centre corridor while his medical courier friend buys everyone drinks. <laughs> and it's while he's out there thinking, what the? That he's joined by the bloke from the bar, who isn't gay and isn't coming on to him, but is lost. They, we, have a very ordinary, quite friendly conversation about nothing. Gary's birthday, how I know where's where I learned to dance. And I realise I've gone and put him out of a job. He was going to be the one to get everyone dancing. And he wouldn't have been quite as gaily good as me, quite as different. And so he would have had some interest from the girls, and now he's missed out. The others have piled on in, and no one cares about the moves anymore. On an impulse, I say, that girl you were talking to, she was nice. And he mumbles before his face clouds over. He's just started at Travis Perkins down the road. He works in the tool hire office. She's four years older, and she's got her eyes on the boss all right. Fair play to her. What boss, I say, and push him back through the doors, and he's bright pink but smiling. So Dr. Pressure comes on again, and the lad meets her eyes and cocks his head at the dance floor, and she makes her excuses to the fat dad all over her and goes to meet the unpredictable new recruit from Tool Hire on a just big enough square of light. Thank you.
1: Um, I'm going to read uh, from a story called Legendary. It's the first story that, um, that was published by me, and uh, it's my favorite one. I'll just be reading a few pages from the middle of the story. He does something with stocks and bonds and gets a haircut every three weeks. He drinks bourbon from a glass instead of from the bottle. He wears the kind of shoes that need to be polished. Not a practicing Catholic, just chronic. Sleeps fetal. He's not my type, but he has large dry hands and a complicated nose with a deep dent near the top. I always think you can tell what someone is like in bed from the shape of his nose. And a knobbly Adam's apple, the white knuckle kind you can see rise and fall. He ties me to the brass bars of his sleigh bed. The guys I'm usually with barely have a box spring under the mattress. They own two appliances a coffee machine and a bong, and a jumble of chairs. Furniture is something that's just supposed to happen to you. He, on the other hand, goes antiquing. I'm doing things I've never done before, such as picking up dry cleaning. It's short but thick, and when he pushes it up inside, he doesn't use his hands at all. He doesn't look me in the eyes, only at my mouth. He takes me to his druggy work parties and steers me around from room to room by the base of my neck. When he laughs, his happiness builds, just like a normal person's. But at the top, his eyes go blank, as if there's nothing there. I take the subway to night school. Lately, it's always raining, so I can't take the bike. Downtown, I switch from the southbound to the eastbound line. I run across the concourse, reaching the platform just as the train comes sliding in. The doors open to reveal a tangle of bodies, and I clock her immediately, that bone structure, the lean look in her eyes. As she brushes past me, everything snaps into place. I turn and follow her down the platform, watching her calf muscles flex. Holly, I say, and touch her elbow. She freezes for a second before turning around, like someone expecting to be caught. Oh, I'm not her, she says. Then she looks right at me and narrows her eyes. But you know, everyone always thinks I'm the person they're looking for. We stand there, blinking at each other. She blows a tendril of hair out of her face and walks away. The train I should be on goes shooting past. I wonder if it's true that I'm looking for Holly. I must be, the way I just ran after this girl without even thinking. What if she had turned out to be Holly? What would I have said? There are things I want to ask her, but I don't know what they are. Yet maybe, if I really were talking to Holly, I'd know. The rain makes night school smell like what it really is, a high school at night. It's a teenage movie where everyone is at least 30, lumbering down the halls and hunching around two small desks. In basic Italian, I sit next to the woman who would play the best friend in the movie. She's technically prettier than me, the heroine, but not sexy enough. There's a coffee station set up at the back of the classroom, as if we're in AA. When I get home, I go to his drawer and look at the pictures of Holly. They must have been taken in a hotel bed because there are light switches on the headboard. Her nose is slightly burnt, her scars and tan lines glowing. I pretend to slide his cigar fingers along their crests again. Her body is warm and crisp, pumped full of sun. We've never been on vacation. I practice her stubborn, innocent demeanor in the bathroom mirror, and later, when he's moving over me, I think of the constellation of beauty marks peppering her stomach and the underside of one breast. I'm sitting at his desk, slowly getting lit on the fifth of bourbon he keeps in a drawer. Holly fills my head like an annoying pop song. They must have met in this city. He's lived here for 15 years and she has to be nearby somewhere. No one ever leaves. His address book is by the phone. She's on the S page, with eight or nine phone numbers scrawled beneath her name in alternating colors of ink, all crossed out except for one. It rings a few times, and the message clicks on. Hey, it's Holly. You know the drill. Her voice is soft and rough, a scraped knee, There's a sharp intake of breath and the sound of the tone. I hang up the receiver. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or
0: search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.